Al Jazeera podcast. It was a meeting that caused some Libyans to take to the streets. These protesters are chanting, with our souls, with our blood, we support Palestine. Tripoli overnight, roads blocked and tires burnt. The response on the streets to an hour-long diplomatic meeting that Libyan officials tried to keep secret. Libya and Israel have no formal diplomatic relations, and Libyan law is strict when it comes to such meetings. Unauthorized discussions with Israeli officials are illegal in Libya. But in late August, Libyan Foreign Minister Najla al-Mangouche met with Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen in a secret meeting. Or so she thought. Then the news got out, and it's caused a firestorm of controversy in a country with deep ties to the Palestinian cause. Libya's first female foreign minister and top diplomat, Najla Mangouche, has been sacked. The Libyan prime minister, Abdul Hamid Debeba, said he didn't authorize the meeting. Mangouche has a different story, but she was fired. And with the protests growing, and with Mangouche facing possible criminal charges, she fled. Local media reports in Libya say Mangouche has left the country over concerns for her security. Normalizing relations between Libya and Israel would be a huge change for Libya and Arab countries. So, what does Libya say about the next wave of normalization with Israel? I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Mal Trena. I'm the Al Jazeera English reporter for Libya. Uh, at the moment, I'm in Misrata, Libya. So, Malik, to the issue that caused all the controversy. The Libyan and Israeli foreign ministers had a face-to-face secret meeting in Rome. And it remained a secret until the Israeli foreign minister went public about it. Now, I know there's a lot we still don't know about this meeting, but why don't we start with what we do know? Well, yeah, so the news broke from the Israeli uh, foreign ministry and Israeli media. We started hearing about that on, I believe it was Sunday evening. I started seeing an uptake on social media posts with activists and people calling for protests. Later on that night, the foreign ministry released a statement It was an unprepared, casual encounter during a meeting at Italy's Foreign Affairs Ministry. It did not include any discussions, agreements or consultations, and the ministry renews its complete and absolute rejection or normalization with Israel. Pretty much trying to say that when Nezad Mangouche was in Rome visiting her Italian counterpart, the uh, L.A. Cohen just happened to be there. The statement added that there was no discussions, no negotiations of any kind, and that Najat Mangush iterated their stance on their support for the Palestinian cause. Whereas the Israelis were saying that they talked about a whole, whole array of issues, including restoring uh, synagogues and Jewish cemeteries, uh, as well as cooperation in agriculture and water management. So the Israelis were calling this a historic breakthrough and the first step of 
relations between the two countries. So, Malik, there's a lot of things going on here. First, this meeting isn't just controversial, which it was, but it's also actually illegal under Libyan law if it's not specifically authorized by the prime minister. And so now the prime minister and the foreign minister are pointing fingers about who knew what and when. I mean, it's a mess. So before we dig into this, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a quick state of play on the situation in Libya. The country has literally had two competing governments on opposite sides of the country since the civil war broke out years ago. What does the status quo look like these days? Well, at the moment, you have two governments. In 2021, the GNA handed over power to the GNU, with Prime Minister Abdelhamid Debebe at the helm. So you have the internationally recognized government headed by Abdelhamid Debebe, that's in Western Libya and Tripoli, based in the capital. They control most of Western Libya. Uh, I probably want to use that word loosely because there are very powerful armed groups or militias that are based here in Western Libya. You also have in Eastern Libya, the strongman warlord Khalifa Haftar. Making Libya a state with two competing governments who view each other as illegitimate. So, I mean, those are the two main powerhouses here in the country. So I think we have to think about the backdrop. So just recently, and a shift of policy, some people are talking about incorporating both the internationally recognized government in the West and the parallel government in the East to create a new government. Some were talking about replacing Tobeba just completely. So Tobeba is under a lot of pressure at the moment, and he's feeling at risk that he, he might be replaced. So to make the Americans happy, this is what some analysts will say, that he's the one who directed Najal Mangush to meet with the uh, Israelis to try to lobby for American support so he can stay in power. Now, I, you know, talking to analysts, a lot of people told me, or most analysts told me that here in Libya, that even if the Prime Minister Abdelhamid Dabeba directed Najal Mangush to meet with uh, L.A. Cohen, it would need to be in writing for her to be protected by Libyan law. So, wow. you know, if, if she got a phone call, like if Tabeba just called Mangouj, like, hey, I want you to go meet Ellie Cohen in Rome. I mean, that's not enough to keep her from possible criminal charges. I really doubt that Tabeba would put anything in writing. And after the incident, I, I think when... People saw the backlash from Libyans during this meeting. I think he might have felt a little bit at risk, especially with the fact that he could possibly be replaced. So it seems like he fed Nejla to the wolves, and pretty much that's the story. Yeah. I mean, I think you talked to one guy who said, it, I don't know which is worse, if he, if he knew or he didn't know. In regards to the government, if the prime minister knew of the meeting, that's a catastrophe. If he didn't know, that's even worse. It seems like I can't see a single person involved or a single entity involved where this didn't backfire completely. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah I completely agree. This backfired for the Israelis, backfired for the Libyans. I think the only people that this benefited are those that are against this government, against the Prime Minister Abdelhamid Tabeba. They tried to use this against him, but once Najal Mangush was fired, people weren't as angry. So 
they weren't really able to use it politically as much as they hoped. It's possible also that they just didn't think anyone would ever find out, which brings us to this next issue, which is the decision by Eli Cohen, the Israeli foreign minister, to publicly announce the face-to-face meeting. As you mentioned, you have one side trumpeting this news, the other side is now running from it. What do we know about why Foreign Minister Cohen decided to go public about this meeting? I mean, that's a, that's a, I talked to a few analysts, and some people say this was just such a naive mistake that this couldn't have been coordinated. I mean, just it just makes makes no sense for the Israelis. Others will tell you that they're facing a lot of pressure internally, and so having them look at their normalizing ties with countries in the Middle East and in North Africa is a good headline for them, so something that could help them internally in Israel. Do you think it's still a good headline for them? No, it completely backfired. (laughs) The leader of the opposition, former foreign minister himself, former prime minister Yair Lapid, saying that this was amateurish, that it puts in question Israel's negotiations with other countries who would be pretty dismayed to see this kind of what he called a leak. We saw the opposition calling this a huge mistake that other countries that were discussing with Israel to normalize ties will be afraid to in the future because of this announcement. After the break, what the protests in Libya say about what Libyans really want for their own country. When Truganini died, she was mistakenly declared the last Tasmanian Aboriginal. Though some say she sold out her people, in hindsight, Truganini's survival allowed future generations to learn about the near annihilation of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. I'm Charles Dance. Listen as I trace the life of Truganini. Hindsight by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So, Malik, the idea of normalizing relations between these two nations is not to be taken lightly. When you look at the history, longtime Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was staunchly pro-Palestinian. For years, he was an unrelenting critic of Israel and Western imperialism in the Middle East. He funded armed Palestinian groups. He would often excoriate Arab leaders who had relations with Israel. And he made a famous speech, and I know you know this, where he said, all Arab states which have relations with Israel are cowardly regimes. Can you talk about some of this history and how Gaddafi has shaped political opinion on this issue? Well, look, I think first and foremost, people need to understand that when Gaddafi was in power, I mean, you couldn't say anything against the regime. You couldn't talk about politics when it comes to whatever Gaddafi was saying. I think Gaddafi was championing the Arabization of Libya. But at the same time, there are some accounts that the Gaddafi regime had back channels with Israel. But in the public space, he really championed the Palestinian cause. And for most Libyans I spoke to about this issue, Palestine remains a sensitive issue for Libyans. We support the Palestinian cause at all times. The Palestinian people are Arabs, and we care about them greatly. Libyans support the Palestinian cause and are very sensitive about any officials trying to meet them, at least in the public sphere. 
So we've had previous reports of even Dweba meeting with the Israelis secretly. Saddam Haftar, Khalifa Haftar's son, uh, went to Tel Aviv to meet with Israeli officials. So on the back channels, I don't think we haven't seen this kind of backlash from people. But when it comes to the top diplomat, Libya's top diplomat meeting with the Israeli foreign minister, I think a lot of people took issue with that and took to the streets to sound their voices, you know. Libya's official position is one thing, but it's that it's that dissonance with the street that has allowed for people to go out and say, look, enough is enough. So given that history, I wonder what we should make of these protests, because this is a rare glimpse to how the people feel on this issue of Israeli normalization. I, I wonder, does this say more about entrenched attitudes in Libya on Palestine, or does it possibly highlight a rift that might exist between how Arab leaders feel and how the public feels? Well, here in Libya, I mean, definitely, I, I think there's, like you said, an entrenched uh, sentiment towards the Palestinian cause. So people here are very supportive of the Palestinians. They're very anti-Zionist. They do not want to see a normalization. And yes, the people and the government are, are completely different, at least here in Libya for, for the most part. And this all goes back to the kind of pressures that these powerhouses are feeling, right? So you have Khalifa Haftar who wants American support, and that's why he sent his son to Tel Aviv. And you have Tabeba who, who also wants support. They all want to, you know, broaden their influence uh, of power. And, and they see that with perhaps building a relationship with Israel, they could get the backing of the Americans. There's also an anniversary coming up. It's been two years since the landmark normalization agreements with Israel, known as the Abraham Accords. It's been 26 years since the last peace agreement between Israel and an Arab state, that being Israel and Jordan. And now, two within a month. First, Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Now, Israel and Bahrain. But those Arab nations who have normalized relations with Israel have mostly been monarchies. And Malik says Libya is different, at least Western Libya. The people there, he says, have a say. As especially here in Western Libya, I can tell you there's a newfound freedom since the revolution. Despite all the difficulties, all the challenges that Libyans are facing, they are free to express themselves. It feels like a lot of times it feels like Libyans believe that a right to protest means burning tires and closing down roads. But there is this newfound freedom and they want to express themselves. I can't say the same for Eastern Libya. For instance, anyone in Western Libya can go out and trash the prime minister, trash officials. But in Eastern Libya, you can't really do that. Khalifa Haftar is, is pretty much the Gaddafi of, of this age. How much of this controversy is tied directly to that dynamic, having one country being controlled by two diametrically opposed <laughs> governing philosophies? Well, it has to do with everything. I mean, you know, it all goes back. There's a really big feeling among uh, Libyans, and I think Arabs in general, that uh, if you have the backing of the U.S., then things will become much easier for you. So there's, when you talk to a lot of people here in Libya, there's a lot of emphasis on or belief that foreign powers uh, have a lot to say and, and can change the status quo. I think that's what led to this meeting in the first place. 
That's what's so interesting to me in terms of the Abraham Accords. I mean, it just feels like there's been this momentum building and building and building, but you you forget these are monarchies and Libya still has a has a parliament and the people have a say. And here you have this first example, just a toe dipped in the water, a meeting between the foreign ministers. And there's this immediate backlash in a population where they have the ability to protest. And it's like a glimpse into the sentiment that could exist everywhere, but just isn't able to be shown. That's exact. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you something. If Gaddafi, you know, if, if, if Gaddafi was still in power and his foreign minister went out and, and people were extremely angry, you would not see anybody on the street mm. because you would, they would be immediately uh, put into prison, uh, uh, tortured or, or, uh, or even killed. I think, look, for a lot of people, because of the chaos, the violence, the political divisions, the insecurity, a lot of people feel nostalgic about Gaddafi. Despite being a dictator, things were safe. For the regular Libyan, he was safe. He could get in his car at three or four in the morning and drive across the country without any issue. So for, for I think, a lot of people, Gaddafi meant stability. But there is this feeling of newfound freedom, of being able to express yourself. And I think for a lot of people, they'll look at the challenges that Libya is facing, and they're happy, and they'll say, Being able to come out with a sign in the street and express my opinion and talk about the issues that I care about, that's what this revolution was about. So uh, two sides of the coin there. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Kampana with Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, Zainab Badr, Sonia Bagat, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>